Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Not joining me today is Joe Healy. Uh, Joe, is, Joe is off today. Uh, we gave him a, a bit of a break. I suppose that is allowed uh, in, uh, in the middle of, of everything that, that we are going through today. Uh, but we soldier on. And instead, we are going to welcome in John Manuel, who you might remember as uh, former uh, Baseball America college beat writer, among other things. We're, we're, we're throwing it way back there to, to college beat writer. And we're going to talk about the, uh, the rise of, of the Rice program. This is a part of our, you know, classic teams and games series. You can watch, uh, you know, some of these uh, classic Rice games. There's a 1999 College World Series game involving Rice on one of Joe's lists of uh, classic games you can watch on YouTube. And there's, uh, there's more out there from their, their run uh, there at the turn of the century. So that's what we're bringing John in to talk about because John chronicled that run uh, leading up to the 2003 national championship for the Owls uh, for Baseball America. So John, it's, uh, it's been a long time since you've been on one of these podcasts, uh, but we, uh, we're happy to welcome you back. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, just rough estimate from the first time we did one in 2000, our, the first podcast was October 2006. For BA anyway, the first college podcast would have probably been January 07. So I'd say doing them every single week through 2015 at least, what's that, eight or nine seasons worth, 14, 15 weeks. Someone do math. That's a, a close to 150 <laughs> weeks, close to 150 college. I probably did more than 150 college podcasts over the years. So uh, we don't have those uh, in, on the Minnesota Twins uh, Pro Scouting Department. We just have Zoom calls every week. So we're all look, hoping for more baseball, but uh, I've enjoyed listening to some of these that you guys have done. And um, I don't believe any of the players in this Rice run are still uh, active. Therefore, I, I believe I will not be betraying any Minnesota Twins secrets by participating in said podcast. <laughs> It also tells you how old I am that, <laughs> that I was there for all those. But, yeah, 97, the Rice, first trip to Omaha for Rice. And that was Jim Callis's last year as the BA college beat writer. I succeeded him that summer. But I will never forget watching, because I'd done a Brandon Larson feature during the spring. He was at LSU as their shortstop. And watching him hit this laser home run off uh, Matt Anderson for Rice when Anderson had just been picked first in the draft in 97. And the pitch came in at 100. It must have gone out at 120. And Larson hit it off that scoreboard at Rosenblatt. I mean, I pr he probably dented the scoreboard. I mean, it was just a <laughs> – I mean, J.J. would say it was a rail gun, <laughs> you know. like it, it was an incredible shot. That, that's my first Rice memory was uh, Matt Anderson giving it up. But 97 was kind of when Rice announced its uh, presence with authority in the college baseball realm because, I mean, 
program really had been a non-factor. So to see that, I, so I really did get to chronicle a lot of their rise to college baseball's pinnacle. And 03 was the last year that I covered every single game of the College World Series. I did that from 98 to 03. That's the last time I went to every single game. So that Rice team really uh, does have a special place in my heart. Yeah, I mean, so the rise of Rice is pretty remarkable. Uh, you know, Wayne Graham gets hired in 1992 and goes on to, you know, have a legendary career uh, there at Rice. Prior to Wayne's arrival, no coach of Rice left with a winning record uh, ever. (laughs) Um, Well, in conference play, excuse me, David Hall did actually have an overall winning record. But prior to David Hall, who showed up in in 1981, nobody had had a winning record in – uh, what is that, 70-ish years of Rice baseball history. And then, yeah, so David Hall kind of gets things going a little bit, but still not anywhere close to what they would be. And and then Wayne shows up, and, you know, of course, he'd been an outstanding junior college coach. And over the next few years, he kind of starts building this uh, th- this Rice program into something that, you know, in those days in, in college baseball, and I, I think Joe and I have kind of talked around this a little bit, but neither one of us uh, was around quite at this time. And, and not that you were at, at a time I'm about to be talking about either, John, but you were much more aware of this time than, than we could possibly have been. But you know, back then in the early 90s, things were a lot more open. Wichita State had won a national title in 89. Uh, the SEC was just kind of getting into the whole thing. Um, swing of things in, in a big way and you know Fullerton is still very very prominent and so there was just more you know Pepperdine of course as well there, there's more room for a team like Rice to make a move and, yep. and that's what Wayne Graham is able to do there w- once he gets uh, to, to Rice. And I think the main thing is that there were just fewer teams that were trying to be good at college baseball I mean I just think that's the defining to me characteristic of college baseball's history how many teams are trying you know um and in the 60s it was like the big 10 tried because they were the big 10 and they tried everything and they in the west and you know they they tried and in the 70s it was like okay pretty much the same thing maybe a few other teams here or there and you know you kind of have some very random i think programs that pop up like the Bob Ochenko, which directional Illinois did he go to? Southern Illinois, I think. Southern, <laughs> what, yes. Southern Illinois. I mean, like their uniforms are so crazy when I look back at those old days. Um, but it's, it really is like each decade has, you know, Maine going to the College World Series all the time. So you have all these um, different pockets with coaches or you had Wazoo's success under Bobo Brayton. But there just weren't consistently a large number of teams trying and in the 90s, one of the defining characteristics of that period was that a lot of private schools tried and succeeded. Pepperdine, Rice, you know, you had the golden age of Wake Forest baseball um, from 99 to 01, I guess, where they won the ACC tournament three times in four years. I guess it was 98 to 01. And uh, you had a lot of small schools. Um, those are all... Those are, th- you know, especially Rice and Wake Forest, those are two of the smallest Division I football programs I can think of, uh, football bowl series, uh, FBS. So 
Um, but Rice hadn't had really any success. Uh, I don't know what they hung their hat on athletically. But, of course, the other defining characteristic for Rice at this time was the demise of the Southwest Conference. And correct me if I'm wrong, 96 is the last year of the SWC? That is correct, yeah. So Rice wins the Southwest Conference tournament in 1996, the last baseball tournament. And then the league splits up. So you're looking at a league where SMU didn't play baseball. Um, so they're going to get left out. But So they get the big, the, the quote-unquote, uh, big schools. You get obviously Texas and A and M, and then Texas Tech, and then somehow Baylor <laughs> get go to Politics. the Big Twelve. Politics. Politics. I, I knew that had to be an answer. I just really was never interested. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I've been to Waco. So I went there on this. We'll get to that on my 2003 trip. But you go. So those four schools go to the Big Twelve, and everyone else gets left out of these power leagues and. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was Rice initially in the WAC? That is correct. Yeah, they show up in the WAC for a few years. And, and um, the WAC for several years, I guess, was, about a decade until yeah. 2006. They're in the WAC. And the WAC was crazy. The WAC, <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, you're uh, are my former colleague and uh, you know, Aaron Fit. A lot of college baseball people know Aaron. Aaron's favorite word for these conferences is permutations. He loves that word. And the WAC had more permutations then Aaron had permutation references uh, or there, or Aaron had more, the, the WAC had more permutations than T Dapo has permutations of nachos made with tater tots. So, I mean, they're just infinite possibilities for the WAC and uh, rice. The, the most amazing thing to me was how that, that league still had some good baseball programs. It's hard to figure to remember everybody who was in it back then, but I'm pretty sure San Jose state was in and mm -hmm. Fresno Yep. Uh, there were some pretty good baseball programs. So, yes, the WAC was not as competitive as maybe the SWC was, but Wayne's key to the whole obviously is Wayne Graham, and uh, that he. So I think the landscape was ripe for Rice. All you had to do was try, and you could get pretty far in college baseball at that time because not everybody tried. So that's number one. Number two, there was some instability, and they obviously they proved they could win in a conference with Texas and Texas A&M. I think it's fair to say it's easier to win not in a conference with Texas and Texas A&M because if you're Rice, most kids in Texas are going to grow up wanting to play for Texas or Texas A&M, not dreaming of playing for Rice. It was Wayne's job to make kids in Houston dream of playing for Rice, and to his credit, he did that. But I think when he was first starting – that was not the case. So I think it is not a small factor that Cliff Gustafson's kind of era was ending at Texas and Texas was on the downswing and the start of the Augie Garrido era, which was not smooth, a couple losing seasons. I, I think that the fact that the demise of Texas, the timing was perfect that Wayne got to Rice, took advantage of and contributed to the downswing for Texas's program. I, so I think the timing all worked, but um, so it could have worked for someone else. It worked perfectly for Wayne Graham because uh, he's a unique figure in baseball history. And I mean, this guy played for Casey Stengel in the major leagues. And in college at Texas, he played for, if I'm not mistaken, he played for Bib Falk. 
So this guy played for two of the most historic, like one of the most historic college baseball coaches of all time and one of the most historic major league managers of all time. And I always loved Wayne's story uh, when he was riding the bus for the 1964 Mets, like to the airport somewhere and maybe the train station, I forget. They're on a bus and he was sitting close to the front where the media and of course, Casey Stingle loved to talk to the writers. He called them my writers. And he said, one of the things that Wayne Graham said he overheard him say was, how do they expect me to win games with players like Graham? It's <laughs> <laughs> one of my all-time favorite Wayne Graham stories. So I just think it's amazing that you know, Anthony Rendon, Anthony Rendon and Babe Ruth, because Casey Stingle was Babe Ruth's roommate at one point in his career. And he managed Wayne Graham, and Wayne Graham coached Anthony Rendon. That's crazy. It That's is. That's just crazy. I, it's I, also crazy you mentioned Falk and, and, and Stangle, and those are the two that very commonly get cited. But he also played for Gene Mock, who is right. a pretty significant figure as well. And those are like the three guys the he Phillies. played for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's insane. I mean, was he – he might have actually been on the 64 Phillies who were noted for their collapse. 63 the, uh, Phillies. 63 Phillies. Well, 64 – so the 64 Phillies were the ones who collapsed. But, you know, Gene Mock. Um, <laughs> it's a good – I guess we can't blame Wayne's track record with pitchers on Gene Mock, who was notorious for flogging pitchers late in the 64 season. I will always counter the – the anti-Wayne Graham pitching thing with he also coached Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit at San Jack. So the guy knows pitching. I'm not saying the track record at Rice is the track record. I can debate that with people all day. That's not what we're here for. But he came to Rice with pedigree as a guy who, uh, you know, my favorite parts of Wayne's background are always, A, that he threw BP for years and years with the Astros when he coached at San Jack. So this guy – he knew the baseball community in, in Houston. He's, he's dripping. I mean, he's like central to Houston baseball. He's as central to Houston baseball as anybody this side of uh, Judge Hoffheins, you know, who brought the Astros to yeah. Houston and built the Astrodome. Um, so he, he had ties to the pro club. His amateur ties were deep. So, again, another person, another way that he was perfectly positioned to succeed at Rice because he could really recruit Houston – extremely well and he didn't didn't have to recruit outside of Houston too hard <laughs> you know he could get players he needed inside the concentric circles of hell that are Houston traffic I mean it's a great city but it's a huge city and what are the, you look at the map and they're like eight belts like eight belt lines around the city and he didn't have to go too far outside of the Houston the greater Houston area to recruit there's a lot of talent Houston's an awesome baseball city and Wayne is a reason for that, and he tapped into that. Um, so, I, to me, that's a huge part again of that of that Rice story. But that the 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 fact that he that they went to Omaha in '97 and went back, you know, so we we see we see schools, you know, Pepperdine. How has Pepperdine been back since '92? I am not I sure that so. they have been. I don't. I don't, I don't know think so. Like Notre Dame, you know. Yeah. I, Went in 2002, you know, they beat Rice. Great game. First game that uh, Notre Dame won in Omaha was uh, against uh, Justin Crowder and Rice. It was a fantastic game. And uh, I remember Steve uh, Stanley 
famous for being drafted the money ball draft, popping up at third on this huge triple E hit in that game. And, uh, you know, his emotion. But, you know, Notre Dame hasn't been back. Um, I think of a lot of private school. You know, Wake, like I said, had all that talent and success in the ACC, couldn't break through to Omaha. A lot of private schools or a lot of schools have popped up, for, you know, the Raging Cajuns like you guys had on a podcast, thousand. Ken Stead, starting teams get there. Getting back and being a consistent winner is hard for these non-traditional powers to do. And Wayne made Rice into a, a, a school that people think of as a traditional power, even though they really aren't. Yeah, it's really remarkable that they, you know, their entire history is basically since 92 with, with Wayne yeah. Graham. And, and, but it's so strong because they were in the tournament for 20 years in a row and they have this run uh, where they go to, to Omaha in, in 97, 99, and then 02, 03, and then again, three straight years, 06 to 08. And, you know, it's been a while now, but they're consistently, they've consistently been in regionals and, and they've won regionals since that streak ended. It's been a few years now that they've done any of that, of course, but, uh, you know, at the turn of the century, they were, they were as much an it program, it feels like, as, as there was out there. And, you know, a lot of that is because of the talent that he's bringing through. Yeah, Wayne's a, a really good coach, but, you know, the talent, you know, you look at Lance Berkman and, uh, you know, all of the cruises and right, you know, right. Trey Cruz just got drafted th this year and I, he's the last one to, that, that will have played for Wayne Graham, but the Cruz family, uh, very, very prominent in, in Rice uh, lore as well. And then all of the pitchers, is there, are there any of those guys around that time that are kind of the definitive players of, of that era? Or is it, is it just definitely the rotation that, that made the 2003 team? as famous as it is, is, is that where your mind goes to when you think of Rice players of the, of the turn of the century? Yeah, that's where it goes for me. I mean, you know, I, I do think it starts with Berkman and Matt Anderson just because Berkman, because he had the lengthy major league career and a borderline Hall of Fame career. I think if, if Lance Berkman got in the Hall of Fame, it would not besmirch the Hall of Fame. I'm not advocating for him to get in. There are worse players than Lance Berkman who are already in. I'm not a fan of his post-playing career. <laughs> say it that way um but it is what it is um but that's a guy who hit one home run in the cape and and then he uh hit 41 the next season for rice <laughs> i know they were dropped five bats but come on <laughs> 41 home runs incavilia is the only one who's hit more yeah that's uh, that's and, an unbelievable number and not just that teddy he if i'm not mistaken he hit 20 from both sides of the plate. I, I don't remember how to look that up. I can't find that now. I know I, I, know I wrote that in 19... That, that he's a guy who hit 20 home runs from one side and 21 from the other. And that's just mind-boggling. But again, a guy who was banged on in the camp the previous summer by scouts for... They, they doubted his power because he hit one homer with wood. So... Um, you know, then you, but Matt Anderson was the higher draft pick. I mean, Berkman was 16th overall. Anderson goes first. I know a big part of it was signability. You know, the, I think Detroit had the first pick and the uh, rumors all spring where they were going to take Ryan Anderson, uh, who was the six foot 11 left hander who wound up ruining his shoulder in the minor leagues. Um, I saw Ryan Anderson pitch in the Pan Am games in 1999. He was pretty doggone good. But, uh, you know, they, they couldn't agree to a number. 
the 96 draft had been kind of a crazy draft. We won't go into that in this pod, but the point is, you know, Matt Anderson was signable at 2.5 million. Uh, you know, if you really want to start, get JJ Cooper started, get him started talking about the year that a college reliever went one, one in a draft. And, you know, JJ would go for, for days, but, um, but that, again, that team was a really, I mean, the two, two first round picks and they break through, but the 03 team was the pinnacle for the reason that you said they'd been Omaha in 2002. And Rice tamed them in that regional. And I was doing super regional previews and I called coach Knudsen and he just said, my God, Rice's arms are ridiculous. He said, they brought this freshman Neiman out of their bullpen. He was talking about Jeff Neiman. And he was talking about, I think he's the, that, this is where I heard the phrase that he was throwing bowling balls with teeth. That's the way he described his fastball, having that kind of downhill plane. And just like he just said, if we had wood bats, it would have all snapped. And that's the first time I remember hearing about Neiman. And I don't remember if you mentioned Jeff Townsend, but Phil Umber had been drafted out of high school. So Umber was supposed to be the guy, but Neiman and Townsend weren't drafted out of high school. And this is the part where I think, to me, I, I, you know, that Rice title I saw the most. But also those guys were undrafted out of high school, Townsend and Neiman. And for most 2003, they were the best had competition. There were a lot of other really good pitchers in college baseball that year, including John Hudgens, who they'd see in the Powdle Series Finals. Jared Weaver at Long Beach State, among others. I mean, uh, Justin Verlander was a sophomore going into the second of his three seven and six seasons at Old Dominion, uh, but throwing really hard. Um, <laughs> not like I noticed, but throwing really hard. Um, so there were a lot of good pitchers in college baseball, but uh, Neiman and Townsend were this incredible duo. And uh, in 2003, I mean, did, correct me if I'm wrong, did Neiman win 17 games that year? believe that's think, correct yes i think he went i think he went 17 and 0 17 and 1 so you know rice had had a pitcher a couple of years before named jeff nichols who won a ton of games and back then before the common start date some of these teams would start in early february or if you're arizona state miami middle of january so you could have a guy get 19 starts in a season so Jeff Nichols, I, I seem to recall going into his senior season, like with an outside shot at the Division One wins record. So it's not like so again, and they had Kenny Ball in two thousand one, you know, ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one had had just a tremendous career at Rice. It was a first round pick who, you know, a lot of people like the bag on Rice for Kenny Ball's injury. Yes, Kenny threw like one hundred fifty innings at Rice his junior year. He also threw 50 innings after he signed for Detroit, including like deep into the Eastern League playoffs. Wayne Graham had nothing to do <laughs> with Kenny Ball throwing 200 innings that year. He had a lot to do with Kenny Ball throwing 150 innings, but the last 50, that was on the Tigers. So who's to know which innings is where Kenny Ball got hurt? You know what I mean? So I think Wayne gets uh, it's just easy to dump on him. But, but so he, he established his pitching pipeline already. But that oath, that, that group that wound up going uh, third, fourth, and eighth in the draft, have three pitchers from the same rotation picked in the top eight. And then another guy who had a long big league career, David Arjma, had such a golden arm but wasn't good enough to start on weekends and was your closer. That was pretty good. And I think the third starter on Sunday, 
I'm forgetting his name, but he was a fourth-round pick. So it's not like he was chopped liver. And they just were able to save Wade, uh, Wade Townsend for the midweek games in 2003. And all their midweek games were like Houston, I think five times against Houston and, you know, a lot of Big 12 teams um, and Conference USA teams, good teams in midweek. And so Wade Townsend was saved for midweek rather than Sundays in the whack. And, uh, you know, uh, Wayne really maximized that, uh, that quartet of uh, pitchers. I think Stephen Hurse, H-E-R-C-E, if memory serves, uh, was the third starter. Did I remember that right? I, yes, that is correct. Yeah, my memory's not gone. <laughs> I, thought cor- I thought quarantine had ruined my uh, – I know it's ruined my storytelling, as that last bit just foretold, but I, I didn't think it ruined my, uh, my memory. So happy about that. Yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned that that 03 team, uh, you know, was the number one team for most of the year. They also won 30 straight games at one point. Um, That's crazy. They were down there for part of that winning streak uh, in, in Houston. What, um, I mean, and, and I know that I read you, you, uh, you, you noted that one of those games against Houston was on the same day as Astros opening day but they still drew really well to Reckling. I mean, what, what was the atmosphere around that team that, that people were realizing just how good they were that early in the season? Well, that was the best part. That was a, that was a good trip. Uh, it's hard to find on the old uh, internet way back machine, but we had, uh, I went to a Baylor A&M series and both teams were good. And they played, uh, you know, two games in Waco and one in College Station or vice versa. So I went to one in Waco on a Friday night College Station to the old ballpark on Saturday, Texas Tech, Texas on Sunday, and then uh, I think I went to a Rice on Tuesday. I toured the A&M uh, campus on Monday, and then I went to the Wayne Graham show on Monday night. And they were in the middle of the win streak when I walk into this restaurant to do the Wayne Graham show. And Wayne, I think, <laughs> wanted to do – anything but talk about that win streak. So as soon as I walked in, their SID at the time, Bill Cousins, showed me in and led me to the front table where Wayne was doing the show in front of this crowd. And I think it was being streamed at riceowls.com. I don't even know if it was on the radio or not. But I just heard Wayne say, but now John Manuel's here from Baseball America. That means I'm done. out so it was like 610 for an hour-long show so I was just like on the spot so the passion of the fan base was very evident to me that night so um, the next day at the ballpark to meet a lot of the parents and hear how they had you know gotten to know coach Graham and what they had learned about the rice for me about rice until maybe their kids got to maybe high school and rice was having the kind of success they were having. Um, and they had a first baseman, Vince Sinisi, who was a big deal. And Vince Sinisi was, uh, you know, turned down a decent amount of money out of high school, got Boris client and could really hit and was best pure hitter on that team. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he got more than $2 million to sign with the Rangers. Don't believe his career worked out. But at the time, Adrian Gonzalez was not thought of as an – he wasn't thought of – he was he was hit over power, and people doubted his power, and the Rangers had moved him to the outfield. Point is, he was a hit over power, kind of smooth first baseman, not a big power first baseman. But he was Rice's, you know, top hitter. 
And so that team just was playing with so much confidence with that uh, win streak. And they just dominated Houston that night. I think the final was 11 nothing. What I wrote about in the story, I remember, you know, I, I, I always remember was Paul Yanish, you know, who did have a long pro career, making this incredible play with an 11 nothing lead on Michael Bourne in the ninth inning on this, uh, you know, and Michael Bourne's an 80 runner. And Yanish just made this just, you know, crazy difficult play. But it was the, it was the effort and it was the defense, uh, the dedication to the details that Rice showed me that night um, that really impressed me. And, and the fact that Townsend was dominant and, uh, da- you know, David Arzma was a dominant closer if you needed one and who could go more than one inning. So they had all the weapons on the mound and they had a good enough offense and kind of the under reported by me and kind of the key guy to that team offensively in retro round up in Chris Colehorst and they called him the grit man G-R-I-T uh, spark plug and he had this famous play in Omaha where he chased down a foul ball I don't, make, I don't even remember if he made the catch but he tripped over the bullpen mound to try to go make this catch and kind of uh, messed up his knee, injured his knee, but played through this injury in the finals and really kind of epitomized that grit man nickname. But he also was very gritty at the plate, you know, long at bats, um, worked count. So he was really, you know, kind of crucial. To, and, and that whole team, uh, the other thing, Teddy, is that the, you know, I think people think of uh, Wayne Graham as this old school guy but he would quote Bill James to us over and over again. He was clearly well-read on what in 2003 were modern modes of baseball thinking in that he was not – like David Arsman was not just a ninth-inning pitcher. The game was on the line of the fifth inning. He was going to bring in David Arsman if he thought it was an option. You know, he had dominant starters, so he didn't have to do that. But he was open to doing that. He was going to – he just said, I'm going to use my best pitcher – in the most important spot in the game. The game's not always one in the eighth or ninth. Sometimes it's one in the fifth. And, you know, he was not beholden to convention. And it was the same thing with them offensively. That team and all his teams had really advanced offensive approaches. They were patient teams. They were kind of money ball teams offensively. So uh, I always thought Wayne at that time was definitely ahead of the curve. So he was modern in his approach and he had institutional learning because of all of the experience he had in his career and the kind of the managers and coach that he'd been around, like we talked about. So it was two great tastes that went great together. The, that, that atmosphere was, it was electric. I mean, it was, everybody's there until the not the last out of an 11 nothing game. I mean, that doesn't happen. Yeah, when, when we look at that, that's kind of like the golden era of uh, college baseball in Houston because Houston at the time is, is really good as well. And uh, obviously yep. Rice is cranking up and, and, you know, A&M, if we want to consider them to be a part of Houston, is still uh, doing really well at the time as well. But just Rice and Houston themselves, uh, you know, and they, they meet in a super regional that year. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's just really a remarkable time for baseball in that city. Houston, that was the year of, right after 9-11, 2 3 4 Those regionals were all hyper-geographic which made it really tough for a lot of Western schools. One of the reasons that Jared Weaver never played in Omaha because, you know, Long Beach always had to go through Stanford to get to the College World Series. And in that era, that was darn near impossible. Um, 
And same thing, you know, those Houston teams with Brad Sullivan and my boy Thomas Papavili and uh, Michael Bourne, uh, Young Cho, they had some really good players. Uh, Brad Snyder, the catcher, who played in the big leagues for a while. Those Houston teams were loaded. Um, they might have broken through to Omaha, kind of like a, a Tulane did in 02, but Tulane didn't have to go to Rice every single year for a regional or super regional. Houston did because they weren't in the same conference because Rice was in the WAC and they were in Conference USA. And um, I definitely think that that uh, hurt uh, Rainer Noble's uh, program and they weren't able to break through. But they weren't the only program like that. You know, again, that happened, I think, a lot. I think Long Beach State probably got jobbed more than any other team in terms of, uh, you know, they played a really tough schedule every year. Uh, but that definitely, I, I think, affected uh, Houston uh, to a significant degree back then because not being quite as good as Rice should not be a top five program in that whole time. But that's kind of what Houston had to do was break through uh, against them. What is like your defining Wayne Graham like memory or, or what, what, what do you think Wayne should be remembered for? I mean, obviously he'll be remembered for – what he did for Rice, but in a more specific, like, what is, what is Wayne's legacy? To me, my favorite Wayne memories are uh, one that's uh, vicariously through Aaron when we, uh, when they changed the bats in 2011. So the college preview issue that year was Anthony Rendon on the cover. And uh, we're focused on defense and, uh, Wayne told Aaron he owed it to the country to get Rice to the College World Series so everyone could see how good Anthony Rendon is. I thought that was pretty cool. I've always loved that quote because I think Wayne really did. Like, as a freshman, he compared Anthony Rendon's wrists to Henry Aaron's. And here's a guy who played against Hank Aaron in the major yep. leagues. <laughs> so he could, he could make the Hall of Famer comp, <laughs> you know. He actually was doing it. Um, so that always stuck in my head. I've always enjoyed the uh, the video of, I think, is the 07 Coddled series where they put a camera on the umpire's hat and Wayne argued a call with second base and the umpire in second base had a had a, the camera on his, the bill of his cap and Wayne went out there and went face to face with him. <laughs> it, was, it was gold, Jerry, gold. <laughs> it was great video. But for me personally, it, uh, it really is uh, that 2003 team. And I happened to be on the same flight out of Omaha with Rice uh, on Southwest from Omaha to Midway. And there's a lot of stories in there, but just sitting and talking. And that, that actually was a great way for me to get to know a lot of coaches in that era. I did the same thing with Pat Murphy after they lost the 1998 championship game. Uh, Arizona State, we were in the airport, we were departing very similar time. So just sitting in the Omaha airport talking to Pat Murphy, um, doing that with Wayne and a lot of the players for Rice after they won the championship was amazing. And just Wayne just being so thankful, but also just how level he was. He was, he'd celebrated and he was excited. But some other members of that traveling party were so emotional over what that meant for Rice University. And 
Wayne almost was already looking at it as like, okay, now it's time to come back to it next year because he knew that were sophomores. Nima and Umber Town were all sophomores. So it's like, let's do this again next year. He was already thinking about it. And we ended up talking a long time about Andy LaRoche, who was a junior college player, I believe at Grayson. And he had just been told, well, LaRoche is tearing up the Cape and the Dodgers drafted him in the 39th round. They might, they might make a run at him. And in the, in the end, the Dodgers did sign him as a 39th round pick for a million dollars, um, different days in the draft. But Wayne was like, if we get LaRoche, we're going to be back here next year. Cause we, but we really need that bat. So he was, he'd won the national championship, a pinnacle of a career. He'd won those before at San Jack, but obviously a pinnacle for what he'd done at Rice. And he was already looking ahead. And still, you know, ABC, always be recruiting. <laughs> he was, <laughs> Wayne was thinking recruiting in the airport the next day. So for me, that's my defining characteristic. You don't get to have as good of a career as Wayne Graham had if you weren't an incredible competitor. So there are lots of sweet stories about like talking soap operas with Wayne and his wife and talking about players and the stories he knew about players and, you know, talking about the old, his old, his playing days, you know, a lot of fun stories with Wayne, but that one in the airport, him talking about LaRoche and looking ahead to next year when the, you know, the the championship trophy was still very fresh in their possession. That's just competitiveness. If you're, and I just think you have to have that level of competitiveness to be considered the best in your field. And I think at that time, Wayne Graham was probably the best coach in college baseball. And uh, it was a crowded field. And he was at the pinnacle and ABC, <laughs> always be crude. I mean, I, you have to be that level of competitor. That's what sticks out to me. That's, that's probably my favorite Wayne Graham memory. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly an elite competitor. I mean, you don't coach until you're 80, whatever it was, <laughs> if you're not. And, and you know, everything about him was just trying to win as, as much as possible it is, is the sense that I got from him, you know, even yep. at the end. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, it's those kind of guys who usually hang on a little too long because you always think you've got it. Um, I always kind of regret that for Wayne that, his, you know, the end of his career wasn't, uh, perfect. It wasn't scripted, but neither was Michael Jordan playing for the Wizards. <laughs> you know, I mean, like neither was neither was Willie Mays playing for the Mets. You know, so uh, you know that happens a lot in sports. Um, so that, you know, at least Wayne did it in a Rice uniform. It would have been crazy if it was like, you know, Wayne Graham at age eighty takes over at Texas A and M Corpus Christi or something. Not not dogging on Corpus Christi. Just saying, it wouldn't have been the same. So um, I'm glad that he got to uh, spend his whole career at Rice. I'm sorry he didn't get to leave of his own choosing. At the same time, he kind of did that. I think that competitiveness, when you're just hyper-competitive, I don't think you always realize. I think you always think you're one player, one recruit, one break away from turning things back around. And uh, he'd had such a successful career. Um, I think it breeded that kind of – uh, belief in himself so um i will the only other uh, 1982 wayne managed their um, medicine hat team in the pioneer league and they had 13 pitchers on that medicine hat team and eight of them required postseason surgery so uh 
that's where the Blue Jays were. I remember them telling me that's why they were down on Rice pitchers in the draft. They had firsthand uh, experience with Wayne having managed in their farm system. But I also tells you that Pat Gillick, who was the GM and had worked for the Astros in the 1960s, was their farm director before he worked for the Yankees, then became the general manager of the Blue Jays. He knew of Wayne and he hired Wayne. And he obviously thought highly of Wayne Graham, even in 1982, to hire him, hire him into the Pioneer League. And, uh, but just, you know, I, I think that college baseball was more Wayne Graham's jam. And uh, he was pretty good at it. Yes, uh, to say the least, he, he, was, yes. he was pretty good at doing yes. what he did, both at Sanjak, you know, five national titles, and then, then at Rice and, you know, just chronicling his rise here. Uh, and, and Rice's rise, they're, they're the same, uh, are, are, it's remarkable. And, and it's why Rice has Reckling Park, which is a beautiful ballpark uh, in Houston. It's why we think of Rice as, as one of these, uh, you know, traditional programs. And, and it's why Matt Braga has the expectations on him that he does right now as he tries not, to get Rice back to the pinnacle. And I think Reckling, the current stadium, was like uh, fairly new when I got there in 03. And if people haven't been there, if you're listening and you're not from the Houston area, I mean, it's I know that ballpark's worth a trip. I know there are a lot of great ballparks in college baseball these days, but that one is uh, got a great view. This campus is just, uh, again, it's been a while since I've been there. It was a pretty impressive campus for this East Coaster. Um, and touring some of those campuses that year, uh, Baylor and A&M and uh, Texas at Austin. It was my first time at, at UT Austin. Uh, and then going to Rice. I actually had a, a quick tour of uh, Houston as well. Uh, I went there that uh, that day on Tuesday and saw their ballpark and uh, campus. I believe Todd Whitting showed me around a little bit when he was an assistant coach there at Houston. And, um, you know, they, again, they had a really nice program. But the Rice campus, I just – I was blown away. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of oil money there, so it should be nice. But it is. And with the hospital out behind the outfield fence on the skyline, uh, you know, Houston, I know they have a downtown, but they have tall buildings everywhere in Houston. It's just such a big city geographically. It's pretty much it. You, you could go in a lot of places and have a skyline, but they have a pretty nice skyline for a college ballpark. I just didn't expect it. And the ballpark itself has some beautiful archways and some really nice architecture. I, I was just very impressed with it. And uh, I had a blast, but uh, it's easy to be impressed with a team that wins 30 games in a row. And it was just, I just remember seeing, again, that team, seeing them in April and just thinking, if this team doesn't get to Omaha, it'll be a shock. And then when they got there, I mean, that was a pretty stiff competition. That, that Stanford team was loaded. I know they did, did they play? They weren't in the same bracket. They played them in the finals. Correct. And, and so Stanford, they, uh, they needed three games. It was the first year that they go to the, the three, best of three series. And, yeah, so uh, and they needed it. And they needed it. So first year with no CBS, first year where it's all ESPN. So ESPN also, because they were trying to build the story, that's the first year Super Regionals were on TV. So uh, that was a big deal. I actually went to Bristol for Super Regionals and, uh, you know, helped in the production room and got to watch all the games. I mean, it was a big deal. It really felt like 2003 took college baseball up a notch because it was all ESPNs and um, 
again, that Stanford team, just I think there were six big leaguers in the everyday lineup. Uh, you had all freshmen right side of the infield in John Mayberry Jr. and Jed Lowry. Uh, you had three big league outfielders because Danny Putnam only had a cup of coffee, if I'm not mistaken. But Sam Fold and Carlos Quentin, my all-time favorite player, who makes me talk for one brief second like I'm from Staten Island. But um, in right field, Carlos Quentin, who needed Tommy John surgery, but still played right field, and he had one good throw in him every game. Uh, that was when I – that actually 2003 was when I first really started questioning Mark Marquis as a coach because many reasons, but one of them was John uh, Mayberry Jr. had a howitzer slash railgun slash cannon – and he played first base, and Quentin needed arm surgery and played right field. Um, you had Ryan Garko, like, on the short list of my all-time favorite players as the catcher with Donnie Lucy behind him. Donnie Lucy might have even made big leagues. Chris Carter, not the Astros guy, but the left-handed hitting guy who played for the Mets. He was the DH. He was also on that same flight out of Omaha <laughs> with me and, and Rice going to O'Hare. That was one dejected young man. Um, did not have a ton of pitching. It had John Jones. Who is the was, College World Series MVP in a losing effort. Because he was so awesome. <laughs> he was 354 days and won all three starts. And, you know, basically like it almost set the bar because a couple of years later, uh, Pat Casey decided that it was okay for Jonah Nickerson to go 323 pitches in nine days and winning the 2006 national championship. But who's counting? Um, but the thing with Mark Mark was, was in 1999, he pitched Justin, uh, Jason Young within an inch of his life. I believe it's officially in the box score. I think it's 176 pitches and this crazy 9-7 win against Florida State. Um, and then he said, well, in the postgame, he told me, well, he hadn't pitched for a week. So it's different in college than it is in pro ball. So he had more time to recover which, okay, I don't agree, but okay. <laughs> but then four years later with John Hudgens, he's like, well, he's our best pitcher, so we brought him back on short rest. And I was like, but four years ago, you sat here and said he had more rest so you could go more pitches. So I really did lose some respect for Coach Marquis, who I think very highly of on a personal level. I think he has a lot of integrity. But he – talked out of both sides of his mouth with regard to how he handled his pitchers in Omaha in a four-year span. And I had a real problem with it. And uh, what Stanford's been to Omaha once since, I think other teams have used that in recruiting very well. <laughs> and I think Vanderbilt emerged as Vanderbilt. So that's a big, I think kids who used to go to Stanford go to Vanderbilt now. And, uh, but Stanford hasn't been the same. But at that time, it was a five-year run. The entirety of my time as a beat writer they were number one for 14 weeks and then 99 through 03 they went to Omaha every year so I was like the Stanford apologist in the country you know because all I thought of was Stanford was awesome Wayne did the same thing but he was peppering in all these times he'd seen Quintanilla who was Texas's shortstop and where he'd seen him as an amateur and he knew his savvy and he knew how good and he's like that I sent the runner even though I knew Quintanilla if anybody could make that play it was Omar because I'd seen him do this I mean it was so the semifinal, I mean, it was, that was Texas as defending national champion, Texas. That was the College World Series where Houston Street was playing third base because nobody could hit for Texas 
and play third base. So Augie just said, forget it. I'm playing Houston there. And he, you know, he or I believe at that time, it might have still been Frank Anderson, who was his pitching coach, would make this very slow walk to the mound. And a catcher who I believe was Curtis Thigpen <laughs> would leap out of the Texas dugout, toss a ball to Street, and Street would start warming up off flat ground while playing third base during this pitching visit. That's how he got loose. And the next year they changed the rule. You can't do that. So it was the Houston street rule. You can't warm up a relief pitcher while he's playing a different position. Like, uh, they, they, you know, because that's how they did it. And that happened in Omaha. That happened in a game against Rice. So Rice didn't win a cheap national title. They had to go through Texas in their bracket, the defending national champion, to win their bracket. And they had to go against a Stanford team. They had like six or seven big league hitters to win it. So uh, it's really uh, one of the more impressive Colorado Series championship runs you can think of. It is. I mean, it's, uh, it's truly remarkable what, what they built and what they accomplished there. Uh, and, and it, you know, it, it, it put them on the map. And it was the first national championship in any sport for Rice. And it, you know, I believe remains that way. Uh, and, and you know, they so. are, they are what they are as, you know, John Kennedy, not far from Reckling Park went there to say, you know, to, to give his speech about why do we go to the moon? You know, why does rice play Texas? You know, that's rice. And yet that's right. there they are as a, as a baseball power. Uh, and, and this, you know, this era, they're, they're absolutely at the height of their powers. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fun trip down memory lane to, to recall rice in that way. And, and, you know, think about what it, what college baseball can be, uh, you know, in that, in that, you know, university and in that region as a whole. It is. And uh, just thinking about the semifinals too, because I think you're exactly right about Rice. And just like, so you have Rice and Stanford, these two private schools, high, high academic credential schools. And the semifinals opponents were Texas and Fullerton, these two traditional powers, obviously united by, or linked by Augie Garrido. And Fullerton played Stanford every year to start the year back in those days. And George Horton's trying to get out from under Augie Garrido's shower, uh, sh- uh, you know, uh, shadow. And they lost. They couldn't beat Stanford in that area either. Not in Omaha. And they lost in the semifinals to Stanford. I believe that was when Johnny Ash hit a pinch hit home run off my boy Chad Cordero to win a game. I mean, Chad Cordero, who like two years later was in the big leagues, like straight almost college closer to the big leagues. So think about that. Those semifinals had – the 2002 champion Texas, the 03 champion Rice, and then the 04 champion Fullerton. That was Fullerton with like Cordero and Red Turner and Blake Davis and uh, Ronnie Prettyman and like a couple other hitters. You got Danny Dorn. Those Fullerton teams were loaded. They were so good. So I know part of it is that's my. I watched one of those Stanford. Fullerton game sitting in the stands with Houston Street and Seth Johnston who were on the Texas team as they were kind of like watching as fans and the Texas didn't play that day. So I know I'm fanboy about it and, I, and it's rose colored glasses looking back, but that's about as good of a semifinal as you're going to have. Those were, those were great teams. Some of those freshmen on that Texas team 03 were going to be on the 05 championship team that Texas had. So 
that is a stout semifinals. There's no half steppers in those semifinals. <laughs> who were the other four teams who were in that series, uh, Teddy? I can't think off the top of my head who else was in the oh, oh, 03 Caldwell series. I guess uh, that semifinals is ridiculous. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, the, the, just the, the people associated, you know, coaching and, and everything and that, that semifinals. I mean, that's, that is you? absolutely is, is elite. You got South Carolina, you got uh, what will become known as Missouri State, but was Miami view. Okay. So uh, overall, really solid uh, field. That's, uh, that's Smoke Laval's LSU uh, for what that's worth. But, you know, Keith Gutton getting to, to Omaha and, uh, everything that that Missouri State team was, and obviously Jim Morris and um, and Ray Tanner there as well. Uh, an impressive field, top to bottom. All right, we ran into some slight technical difficulties there at the end with John, but I really want to thank him for coming on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, like we said, kind of at the top, uh, he, he certainly was instrumental in the podcast for a really long time so always good to have his voice back and when we think when i think back about you know that period of college baseball and rice in particular i mean john is uh, is one of the leading voices during that time and one of the the experts so we're we're very appreciative that he uh he took the time to to come share some of those uh, those memories with us and, and take that memory trip down memory lane there it is uh for for this uh kind of retrospective about the rise uh and ultimate national championship for for rice in, in 2003 we've had a lot of fun doing these uh doing these retrospectives i think joe and i have one more in us joe will be back next week i think we have one more in us uh next week before we put a put a bow on this series as uh you know this should be just about getting down to the end of the 2020 college season uh, today would have been the start of the final four in uh, in Omaha and uh, on Monday of course the, uh, the the World Series final would be would be beginning so we're we're right down to the uh, the business end of, of what should have been the, the college baseball season a- as it stands so anyway we've got uh, you know, Joe and I will be back here on the podcast next week. Uh, we'll be coming back again with two episodes. Uh, the first early in the week on Tuesday, a little more newsy. The second, uh, one more of these uh, these retrospectives uh, as we look back at, at classic teams and classic games uh, during college baseball history. So I want to thank you guys uh, for listening to the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Uh, Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Uh, even if he's not here, he, he is still there on Twitter. And again, we'll be back with us next week. Uh, you can find plenty of work over at baseballamerica.com. I wrote today about summer baseball and where things stand. There are leagues that are playing already. There are more that are hoping to get underway uh, within the next couple weeks. So you can uh, you can get your update on, on summer baseball over at the website. Joe's Stockwatch series going conference by conference continues, and he took a, an intriguing look at the Missouri Valley Conference uh, this week, kind of deep-dived why the Valley has continued to get at-large bids while most of the uh, the at-large bids for, for leagues outside the Power Five have really dried up within the last few years. And if you remove the American from it, 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 it 
really shrinks further. Uh, there just aren't many at-large bids going to, to non-power conference teams, but the Missouri Valley continues to put at-large teams in the field, and Joe examines why that is. So I'd encourage you to check that out over at BaseballAmerica.com. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you're getting your podcasts, you can find us, and we greatly appreciate you subscribing, uh, taking the time to tell someone about the podcast, leaving us a rating or review, whatever you got for us. Uh, we really appreciate it as it uh, does help other people to uh, to learn about the podcast and, and maybe tune in and, and get us some more uh, some more listeners, which we really appreciate. Uh, so thank you again to John Manuel for joining us today. Thank you guys for listening. I'll be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast next week. See you then, folks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.